Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. Well, it's good to be with all of you. Uh, truth be told, I, I used to come to Michigan, Detroit area quite a bit. I come from a very, I'll call it a modern family, okay? My dad is on his third marriage, his sister's on her fourth, and his dad before he died was on his fifth, okay? That side of the family is all Jewish. And my half-brother and half-sister live in Bloomfield Hills. So for about four years in a row, I was coming up for bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs at Temple Israel. And I think I was the only guy wearing a Roman collar in many years that stepped foot in there, okay? So uh, very modern family. Um, my mom and dad uh, were married, had me, and my dad's now on his third marriage, doing really well. My mom's doing great, thanks be to God. Everyone got their life going in the right direction, as far as we can tell. You never know what happens at a Thanksgiving dinner. But other than that, things are going well. Those memories may be fresh for some of you. I apologize. All right, so today what I really want to do is kind of help you understand uh, what it means to be human, why it's so hard to be human, and what it would look like if we were a church who took our humanity seriously. So what does it mean? Why is it so hard? And what would it look like if we had a church that took our humanity seriously? To begin, uh, this picture up here, the, none of them are my family by blood. Right? My first assignment, I met these five couples. They were all friends. And I think there's three more kids in addition now, and some are cut out even in that picture. Five couples, over 20 kids. We get together a lot. Uh, the fact that I was with them a few weeks ago and I'm not sick when I'm with you is a miracle. Uh, kids are germ-ridden uh, and... They run up and cough and then eat your food and run away. Uh, I know their marriage is really well, but it also gave me a great formation for uh, so much that we do as a church doesn't consider what that daily life looks like. So we map out a spirituality or church teachings, and they're like, I just got through the day not killing my kid, and now you want me to do what? All right. And so it just kept me really grounded and rooted in a lot of things. So, as I said, uh, as Father Mario said, I used to do Second City Improv Comedy in Cleveland. Before that, I was a jazz trumpet player, and then after those two, I entered the seminary. Probably a lot like your pastors. Um, but if it's not, uh, just kind of, you know, stick with me here. I have a great love of St. John Paul II. His writings on what it means to be human really are what gave me the lens to understand why what I was already experiencing in the beauty of jazz the community of comedy, that none of it was sacrificed in following Jesus. That Jesus is not a no to what is beautiful and good in your life, but he's a great affirmation and elevation. If that wasn't the case, evangelizing is the meanest thing because it means when you go to people, you have to take away things they love. But if it means it affirms and elevates the things that are already beautiful and good in their lives, well, we get to tell everyone some really great things. So discovering that in my own life really set me free. All right, so you know a little bit about me. I want to get to know you a little bit. All right, so let's do this first. On the count of three, if you could just say your first name. One, two, three. Lisa. Great, Lisa jumped out ahead of everyone, so I heard hers. But everyone else, uh, great to meet you. I want to ra raise your hand if you are in your first year of ministry ever. First year of ministry some newbies, wonderful, great. Welcome to the vineyard of the Lord. Raise your hand if you've been doing it for five years or less. Great, good, good. 10 years or less? 20 years? 
How about 25? 30? 30, okay, a couple of 30s. 40 and less? 50 or less? 60 or less? Okay, good, wow. all right, great, all right, well, wonderful, that's great, great to see you. Raise your hand if in your time of ministry, you've met someone who you go, that's the real deal. That person is actually, I would call them a saint. Raise your hand if you met someone like that. That's amazing. Good. Notice that. That's beautiful. Raise your hand if you met someone who was a fellow minister of the Lord in the vineyard of the Lord, maybe even wore a Roman collar, and they disappointed you and maybe hurt you terribly. Yeah, look at that. Very real this morning. I like that. All right. I'm really sorry about that. You need to know, especially if he was wearing a Roman collar, that St. John Paul II said, the faithful expect Jesus from their priests. And then we all come up in, in America with our own little caveats. Like, well, it's okay, he's a person like all of us. But John Paul II finishes, and they have the right to expect that. So just let your heart hear that. All of you, by the end of the day, hopefully will like me and think I'm amazing. But if you talk to my staff, it ain't the case. It's like family life. Your husband's amazing. You're like, oh, really? Let me tell you a story. <laughs> we hold heavenly treasures in earthen vessels, but they are heavenly, but they're also earthly. And what we do so often is separate it. And we get really upset by one, and then we have dreams and hopes by one, and then that one lets us down, and then we, over time, if you're a minister long enough, you're going to have to wrestle with cynicism and hardness. You're just going to have to. There's a reason Jesus talked about it so much, because he knew his followers would feel it. And so we're going to get into a little bit of that today. Also today, I'm going to try to honor the introverts and extroverts among us. So there'll be some discussions. There'll be some alone time. All right, so if you're like, this small group circles just tastes, feels like hell to me. I know I'm going to have to share. If that's you, you'll have some alone time. But if you're like, I can't wait to tell everyone every thought I've ever had. Right? There'll be some sharing time as well. All right? Just be conscious of when there's sharing time, we're going to ask the whole table to be able to share. So you may need to edit every thought. Maybe get a few in there, okay? Really good. good. All right, now raise your hand if you've heard Pope Benedict XVI's I would argue famous quote by now that Christianity is the result of an encounter with Jesus. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Most of you. Great. So where does that encounter happen? How do we foster encounters with Jesus? You just shout something out. Everyday life. Good. What else? Retreats. Good. What else? Eucharist. Good. Sacraments. What else? Prayer. Wonderful. Bible, good. Anyone else? Relationships, wonderful. Good answers. Suffering, great, I'm sorry, but yes. Adoration, good, yeah. So, you know, sacraments, mass, adoration, confession, scripture studies, catechesis. Remember the Great Adventure Bible series, Catholicism, form.org, whatever one would like, okay? These are all beautiful things. Mission trips, El Salvador, Haiti, Appalachia, etc. You go, you see, find them in the poor and those in need, all right? Parish renewal programs, rebuilt, divine renovation. You get people finding, oh man, a reordering, a restructuring. This could be the opportunity for Christ at work and seeing the Holy Spirit. These are all amazing. We've also been doing all of them a really long time, and our numbers are the opposite of the Acts of the Apostles. 
kind of hate to pull the rug out from under you there. Sorry. I was really building that up. <laughs> Careful, though, to say these don't work. Probably if you've ever put any of these on or done this, a few people had their big conversion moment through something like that. But by and large, the last 70 to 80 years in the Church of America, we have done more of all of those than we ever have in our history. And the numbers are going in the opposite direction. So the question we have to ask is, what are we missing? This, the question is not, why are all these bad and we should get rid of them? Not at all. If I had the brilliance of a Robert Barron or a Jeff Caven, I'd put out those things left and right for everybody. Right? You can't love what you don't know, so knowledge is important. Boy, I was on a mission trip to Jamaica one time. I swear it was a mission trip. All right? And I mean, I was kids who had AIDS and HIV and were handicapped. It was beautiful. First time I'd ever experienced humanity on such levels of poverty. It really got inside of me. It was wonderful. But why are our numbers going down? What's going on? What are we missing? Well, I'm going to propose to you today that this is what we're missing. The heart. All of those programs, all of those experiences, all of those sacraments were meant to land somewhere inside of you. The question is, where? Your head to think about? i got a lot of stuff to think about. All right, I'm losing my hair because you can't grow grass on a busy highway. I've been thinking a lot. Where does it land in the... It's supposed to land in the heart. Here's a quote from the Catechism. The heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. The heart is our hidden center, beyond the grasp of reason. The heart is the place of encounter, because as the image of God, we live in relation. Quick note, you have all the quotes with you there. They're on sheets of paper at your table. Also, you're going to have all these talks recorded and given to you, so you can just be present and receive and be like, I'll figure out what he meant later on. I'll just kind of have a day out of the office a week, right? right? But you can just be present and let whatever moves in you move in you and just be attentive to God today. But all the quotes are on your table. Also, on those sheets of paper, way more quotes than I'm going to use today. As it says at the top, quotes I like. Uh, you might like them too. All right, so we'll see what happens. Back to this heart quote. Two things I want to highlight is... It's beyond the grasp of reason. So when the Bible and the church speaks about the heart, we don't mean a place you can just reflect on and discover. It's not going to come to light automatically through having a counselor or just a good friend. It's beyond reason, which means we really need the Holy Spirit to show us who we are. The deepest place inside of you the place where you really live, not a mask, not a projection, not how you wish you were in this moment, not how you regret how you were 20 years ago, five minutes ago. The real you, where you actually live, it's this very sacred place called the heart. It's also, if you notice, it's the place of encounter. So when Pope Benedict says Christianity is the result of an encounter with Christ, it means somehow we met him in this sacred place, this deep place inside of us came awake. Something moved inside of us. Something generated a new hope, a new way to live as the result of this encounter. It awakened from within. It didn't feel imposed or stifling. It felt like, gosh, to follow this way of life may involve a change of friendships and jobs and all sorts of things, but it feels so right because it's drawing me. 
It's appealing to something deep. Here's another quote on the heart. This one's from Gaudium et Spes, the Vatican II document. Man plunges into the depths of reality when he enters into his own heart. God awaits him there. So when we get in touch with our hearts, we're not flying away to some make-believe land. This isn't Hallmark cards. This isn't like, oh, this wouldn't it be nice. No, you're getting in touch with the deepest parts of reality when you get in touch with your heart. And it turns out you're not alone there. When you get in touch with your heart, Jesus goes, hello, how you been? Been waiting for you. You're like, I had no idea you were here. There's a post-abortion healing ministry in our diocese. It's really beautiful called Bethesda House of Mercy. And in their training manual, the first page, it says, we are not afraid to descend into the dark. Christ is already there and waits for us. He's already inside of you. He's already there. He's in that place that is really you. It's very, very beautiful. So, eyes are for color and light. Ears are for sound. Hearts are for persons, for encounter. So you can think about it in this way. Is maybe when you were in high school, that girl or the popular girls or popular guys who didn't pay you enough attention or any attention at all, where that hurt, that's your heart. That song that comes on your playlist, or if you still listen to the radio, all right, and all of a sudden you just jack it up and roll down the windows in the summertime, and you're singing as if you actually were a good singer. <laughs> that place that's coming alive in you, heart. The Christmas gift you really wanted, like the G.I. Joe Command Center when you were five years old, that Chris, whatever it was for you, the Christmas gift you really, 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 really wanted, that's the heart. Now, I've never done PowerPoint before. It's my first time doing a PowerPoint presentation. So I found the slide where there's quotes, but I wanted to quote me. <laughs> I've never seen anyone do that. I thought that'd be fun. So this is just a point I want to make. As is often said by oneself, the heart speaks through the deep desires within us, but they are a language we need to learn how to hear and understand. So the heart speaks through desires. We're going to talk a lot about desire. Super important. But the heart speaks through desire, but we often don't understand that language, so we need time to learn how to hear it. And this is not an option, by the way. If you're not like, I don't really like this heart talk, let's get back to apologetics. We've had that for a while as well. We have to learn how to hear our hearts. So, for example, a friend of mine called me several years ago. She was devastated that her boyfriend broke up with her. And in her mind, she agreed. She's like, I know the reasons. It makes sense that we broke up. But her heart was so broken. What was causing her such turmoil was this sense of, I don't understand what's going on in my heart. Not my mind, my heart. She had to learn that Oh, maybe my heart understands I'm not ever meant to be rejected or abandoned because I'm a person. Perhaps the Garden of Eden's plan still echoes in there. We're going to talk about that. Or how about a youth group kid who talked to me at my parish recently and he was saying, Father, it's been over a year since my grandmother died and I don't know why I'm just still so sad. 
And I said to him, I said, what if your heart knew that you were meant for a world where loved ones don't die? But in this world, they do. But what if your heart is prophetic, pointing to you the kind of life you've been seeking, you were made for? So we have to learn how to hear our hearts and understand them. So who taught me about the heart? This is my favorite thing to do, is to teach you about this guy named Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete. Bad picture, my fault. You can see it though a little. Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete died in 2014. There's now something called the Albacete Forum. I'm like the unofficial priest for them now, which is just one of the greatest things in my life. I kind of get emotional even thinking about it. Never got to meet the guy, but he was an overweight, disheveled, chain-smoking mess of a human being. All right? Just a train wreck of a man, all right? And yet he was an advisor to the popes. He was a physicist. He was on the Charlie Rose show. CNN and Fox wanted to interview him. So did the popes. So did bishops. The guy said one of the greatest scripture commentaries of all times was Monty Python. <laughs> guy was amazing. I don't care. I'm telling stories about it. I'm going to take some time. Okay. There's a story of him in Rome. He was called, and so was another priest, to advise John Paul II. And John Paul II and the other priests are waiting for him because he's late, which he always was. So John Paul II was friends with him, knew that. He's like, he'll be here, don't worry. So he comes in, he's like, sorry, I'm late, sorry, I'm late, and sits down. And the other priest, and there's nothing wrong with these things, but just trying to give you the image. Cassock, perfectly pressed, cufflinks, hair, perfectly gelled, right? opens up a leather dossier and says, Holy Father, I did not sleep well out of the sheer excitement to meet the successor of St. Peter. What an honor. And he goes, well, you're welcome. Glad you could be here. And he says, gives a sheet of paper, enumerated theological points perfectly. And the Holy Father says, thank you for your service to the church. Well done. He says, Monsignor Albacete. And Albacete looks down and he realizes he has powdered sugar all over his disheveled <laughs> shirt. And he brushes it off. He goes, well, let me begin by saying I slept great. He says, and the reason I'm late is there's a wonderful little pastry shop just outside the Vatican, and I thought, I better get a second donut in case the second coming comes, and it's not in heaven. (laughs) So he pulls out a napkin with his points from the coffee shop. He wrote his points the night, like an hour before the meeting. John Paul II actually went with his insights. He's a wonderful man. Here he is, friends with John Paul II. He was also the founder of the JP2 Institute for Marriage and Family in D.C. and the chaplain for the movement in the church called Communion and Liberation. He was kind of the U.S. chaplain. Uh, and his, his writings, he only wrote one book, but gave so many talks, they're being compiled and distilled. And a couple books now are out with his talks on them. And um, at the end of the day today, can I ruin this surprise, team? Can I tell them right now? Well, you can't come up here. I'm about to. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to get a book at the end of the day by Christopher West, but he, this guy was his big mentor and a lot of his writings are in there. So you're going to see how that all goes together as the day unfolds. There's a method to the madness, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So Monsignor Albacetti is riding with a prominent cardinal and they're at a red light and they see this bumper stickle. Jesus Christ is the answer. And the, this bishop or cardinal says, isn't that really great? This person's proclaiming to the world, Jesus is the answer. And Monsignor Albacetti said, yeah, but what's the question? That little term, 
is whether or not we're going to be effective as ministers in the church going forward. What's the question? What's the desire? Why would we even care that he's the answer? Does anyone really stay up late praying and studying because 2 plus 2 equals 4? That's also an answer. Do we really wake up early in the morning and sacrifice all sorts of things in order to really be close to the idea that Lincoln was shot? That's also true. That's an answer. So what was he inviting us to? Well, it's this question. What were the first words Jesus says to humanity? The first words in the gospel Jesus says to humanity, particularly in the gospel of John, is this. What are you looking for? Another translation. What are you desiring? A third translation. What are you seeking? Notice how Jesus' first move is not, hey, how about you get your act together? Notice how Jesus' first move is not, I'm going to have a standard you'll never measure up to so you get to feel inadequate forever and tell everyone, though, that I'm the Savior and they better follow me. Notice how Jesus' first move is not, let me quote Thomas Aquinas for you. Which would have been really something because he didn't live yet. (laughs) Jesus' first question is, what are you looking for? Now I feel like, oh gosh, I don't don't even know. My gosh, what's this going to mean? Well, don't worry. This is from Monsignor Albacete's retreat with priests. He says this, what are you looking for? This seems to be an important question. Because the rest of the gospel is going to be the interplay between the answer to this question and Christ. Christ identifying himself as that which fulfills those desires. But if we are not familiar with those desires or haven't even thought it through, then we cannot recognize the value of whatever it is Jesus offers to us. So if Jesus is the fulfillment, but we don't even know that we're hungry, it ain't good news. If you can't experience your humanity as a cry out for more, then offering someone Jesus is like, it's like a membership to a workout place. I may go once and then who knows. It sounds like a good idea, but I... And this is the beautiful thing. He's giving you permission to say, oh, I don't even know what I'm desiring. I'm so burnt out with being busy, I have no idea what my desires, needs, and thirsts, dreams, and questions are. Notice how in many ways, this what are you looking for coincides with Pope Francis asking the church to be a listening church. The listening church is not what do you think about our teachings. That's not what we're meant to listen to. What we're meant to listen to people is to say, how are you doing? Are you actually happy? What do you think you were looking for in those eight cans of beer last night? What were you really seeking on your all-night binge on porn? What are you afraid to want out of your spouse and so you're hard and cynical and don't ever want to be warm towards them again? There's a fear there, but what would you really desire? 
See, the first move is, what's the question? It's as if we've lived now in a time where the enemy of human nature, which is both the devil but also a fallen culture and other powers and forces, are trying to get you and me separated from ourselves so that Jesus can't even be what fulfills us. Talk about Jesus all you want, that's great. Just don't get in touch with the place inside of you that he's going to set free, that he's going to bless and love. So what are things that awaken desires? Well, this is Atlantis in the Bahamas. Detroit, like Cleveland, this time of year needs to be reminded that this is real. (laughs) There's a place with blue skies and warm water. We don't need six layers of clothes and coats, and uh, people are happy. (laughs) You're not grinding your teeth till May in the hopes that the sun may show up, okay? But just kind of think about it for a second. What does the beauty of that place and the Eucharist have to do with each other? Don't have to answer. Just think for yourself. And if you don't know, kind of hard to get people excited about the Eucharistic revival then, isn't it? Because given the opportunity to go to Mass or go to Atlantis, I'm a Catholic priest. I might see in the Bahamas. (laughs) Unless there's some profound connection. How about friends and relationships? Relationships and friendships are some of the best things in the world. You ever have a need and call a friend and they just happen to meet it perfectly with a joke or a kind word? You're just like, ah. They're amazing. Then you call them the next day and they suck. And you're like, what just happened to you meeting my needs perfectly? And then we all shame ourselves. I'm not supposed to be selfish in friendships. They're not God. Okay, I should be better. And... But see, the heart wanted to be seen and loved endlessly. What do friendships have to do with the Mass? That's a steak, dinner. I don't know about you, I love food. <laughs> love it so much. <laughs> You're having a good meal, and oh my gosh, there's two limits that I hate at a good meal. Food runs out and stomach gets full. They don't always happen simultaneously either, which is maddening. You'll get full and there's still food. Oh my gosh. Or like you could eat more and there's no more food left. Every vacation ends. I don't care how old you get. You leave a really good vacation on your way home, you're sad. And you're like, grow up. I'm like five years old, I'm like moping, dragging my luggage behind me like Linus. I'm like, oh. Friends aren't always perfect. Family either. Meals end. And yet, in those moments, we do taste something that makes us come alive. We go, this is what I've been looking for. Ah, warmth. Oh, a steak. (laughs) A friend calls you and you just laugh and all the stress goes away. But none of them last. Not only do they not last, they don't give us always what we need and what we're looking for. This is the quote we're going to spend a while with this morning. Pope Benedict, before he was Pope, was Ratzinger. He says, The thirst for the infinite belongs quite simply to essential human nature. Then he adds, That thirst is precisely that essential nature. You are, by your very definition of being human, a cry for the infinite. 
You are by your very nature a hungering, passionate, thirsting, longing creature that is never satisfied with all the beauties of the world and you'll still want more. You're not naive or selfish. It's because you're made for the infinite one. But I have a hunch, because I was in the jazz world and the comedy world, the people in the world are more in touch with their hunger than the people in the church. And I mean us, the ministers. We're so afraid at how our desires can take us the wrong way, we try to shut down desires themselves. And then Jesus says, what are you looking for? And we go, whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. He's like, well, that's not how this works. It's meant to be a relationship. In fact, I use the image of marriage. Can you imagine a husband and wife and like a wife always be like, I don't have any wants, needs, or dreams, whatever you tell me. At first, the husband would be like, this is the best. <laughs> but then he's going to be like, Can, is there a person I married? So one of the joys of getting to know a person is that they like things and dislike things that you don't. That things make them come alive. The cry for the infinite is the essential element of being human. Dogs don't do this. And yet we have been anesthetized. Etymologically means being numbed to beauty. We become anesthetized to what the goods and beauties of this world are meant to awaken in us. Also, the early church called prayer nothing but becoming a longing for God, the infinite one. How often is that our experience of prayer? Did certain invocations in the litany this morning move you? That moving, stirring matters. It's how your heart was all of a sudden wanting to connect with God. The goal of a litany is not to get through the litany. The goal of the litany is to find which invocations are speaking to me today and then later on go back to them. Because something was moving and speaking in you. Something was being awakened in you. The infinite is what we're looking for. And this doesn't just mean duration. What if the beauty you're seeing in that scene of Atlantis, tasting in steak or experiencing the love of friends, what if that, that mystery, that beauty, that reality that's in there, but we want it to last forever, but it doesn't? What if he does show up still in this world? What if the infinite one still takes on flesh? What if that's called the Eucharist? How many of us bring our human nature into Mass, the cry for the infinite? How many of us bring our human nature into staff meetings? Because there's no way that that's an experience of the infinite, because it's a staff meeting. <laughs> Did you ever think your boredom and restless with some of the church practices, not teachings, liturgies, etc., but just meetings of like, was because you knew you were meant for something better and more? You're not being selfish or a dreamer. You're in touch with your essential human nature. What it means to be human. The cry for more. And it's that engine that is meant to bring us all the way to heaven. I wonder what Jesus meant when he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and how I wish it was already ablazing. I wish people were alive. I've come that you have life to the full. My joy in you. He's not against that cry. 
What are you looking for? What are you seeking? He's welcoming it. He's inviting it. He, in all humility, like a gentle lover, is begging for it. So what is this thing we're looking for? This known unknown. That's what St. Augustine calls it. He calls it the known unknown. Because we're like, well, I, I know I want something more. And then someone says, Chipotle? You know, no, not Chipotle. You're like, okay, since you know it's not Chipotle, you know something about it. Pope Benedict in his document, Space Salvi, goes through this. He says, there's moments in life when you experience them, you go, this is life. You know, the image that maybe comes to mind for me is like in the summertime, I don't like pop, but there's that image of like, you wash your car in the 95 degree heat, and you come in and get a, a Coke of some sort, you drink it, you go, ah, this is life. There's certain moments that if life was a book, certain moments are also in a pop-up book. And there's sometimes the most gentle, quiet moments there are. Your kid falls asleep in your arms and just is sitting there. You go on a first date and it's easy and joyful. You're just listening to some beautiful Christmas music with your Christmas tree on for the first time of that season. All the other lights are off, people have gone to bed and you're not quote-unquote praying, but it's beautiful. And you go, oh, I needed this. This is life. But Benedict says, there's some moments where it just settles us and awakens us at the same time. We go, yes, this is it. But we're not sure what it is we're seeking. We don't know what that is. So if the next day I go to that Christmas tree, it's not the same. The next time your kid falls asleep in your arm, I'm like, no, this isn't it. Like I went to a jazz club once. I remember it was like one of those nights where everything was amazing. Like music was great. Food was great. I knew the musicians. So they came over and talked to me. So I felt like a VIP. Whole night was amazing. It's great. And like the next time I went to that jazz club, I was like, well, this isn't as good as last time. So it's like, well, I can't make it happen. What is it that I'm seeking? It's not just music. Not, it's a mystery, right? The Bible tries to name this unknown, known, this mystery as eternal life. Let that soak in, because I'm convinced ministers of the church think eternal life means we never have to die. That's part of eternal life. But eternal life, Pope Benedict goes on to say, is the supreme moment of satisfaction. Where everything you're looking for is now being fulfilled in superabundant, overwhelming ways. Eternal life is not, you don't have to die anymore, because to be honest, if we live forever in this world, we'd be miserable. So it's not just you don't die. It's fulfillment. It's I have now become one with this mystery I've been tasting and seeking in all the goodness and beauty around us. And it's not abstract, it's personal. All the goodness and beauty you love, and you love, and you love. The things that make your heart come alive and move it. The things that make you say, I want this to never end, but it always does and it's painful and so I don't want to feel it anymore. Because there is always a cross to get to the resurrection. Our beautiful moments do end, but that's where we're meant to press into the pain, 
not out of a masochistic way, but as a way of opening ourselves to, Lord, this Christmas tree moment's amazing. Take me to a place where they never end. Lord, my kids grow up so fast. Take me to a place where they always want to cuddle. That's eternal life. It's the kind of life that perfectly corresponds to everything your heart has been dreaming of and is even afraid to let you know of because you and I don't know how to hear our hearts yet. So now think through Jesus for a second. He says, he who believes will have eternal life. Now go to your Detroit Pistons games. They're not good, I know, but just go to the game and see everyone coming alive and be like, do you guys love the crowd and the cheering? Yeah. What you love there, I want to show you a place where it never ends. We begin with what people love. What makes them come alive? Because if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. Not just living forever, but a supreme moment of fulfillment. Here you go. If you're all pepped up about the Eucharistic revival, everyone's really excited about it, I know. And uh, it's an odd thing because we don't know how to do it. Right? The bishop's like, we're going to do this. And we're all like, yes, we love the Eucharist. And then everyone's like, what are we going to do? And like, we'll talk about it. Okay, we'll just talk about it a lot and see what happens. Because sometimes people's experience of the Mass is uh, wretched. Not because the Mass in and of itself isn't beautiful and meaningful, but the human elements of the signs, symbols, and abilities make it rather difficult. Maybe the priest's homily is lame. Maybe the cantor, maybe he or she, maybe should have retired 20 years ago. Maybe the church is cold, the lighting's terrible, no one can hear each other, the altar servers are sitting like they're watching a football game, and the person behind you is chewing gum, and you have to constantly go back and forth, do I tell them or don't I? I don't want to be unwelcoming, but I don't know what to say. And next thing you know, you're giving a sign of peace to everyone, you didn't know how the mass happened so fast. We see you out there, okay? But what if what was awakened in Atlantis, in the meal with your friends, what if that mystery, that life, he said, this is what I want so badly. What if he said, by the way, the infinite comes to us under the appearance of bread and wine at Mass, and your heart gets to taste heaven on earth. Actually gets to be nourished. So when tasting it, you live then with hope. There will be a day when I no longer have to have music that ends. There will be a day where I don't get full and steak doesn't go away. There will be a day when Atlantis is all I see. And infinitely greater than all of those, might I add. But if we're going to evangelize the world, we have to have something to offer the world. We have to begin by realizing if God's the creator, there's little appetizers throughout their lives that are pointing to the banquet. Remember those old commercials where you get like five seconds of a song as it scrolled through trying to sell you the album of like different song? Like, that's what creation's like. They're getting little elements of the song. Oh, I like that song. And they say, well, it's the song of the angels. Let me show you the mess. The third one is river of water welling up to eternal life, meaning the Holy Spirit will be inside of you, giving you tastes of eternal life. This is why it's really good to be human. But notice it all pivots on, are you in touch with your heart? 
Do you know those desires? Are you learning to listen to them and bring them to the Lord? Or, and we'll talk about this in our second talk today, have you been deceived to think the desires are the things that have led you into problems? Father, if you know what I did in my desires in the 20s, in my early 20s, you might not be telling me to get in touch with my desires. Do we yell at a homeless person for eating out of a dumpster? No, their hunger is good. Where they went to get it fulfilled was the problem. Every sin you've been in love with was doing something for you. That's why you went to that sin. The need for comfort, for relief, for peace, for freedom, for joy, to feel not as out of control, those desires are holy. Where you go to get them met may be another question, but your whole existence is nothing but a cry for the infinite mystery. And we get little glimpses of it along the way. What we learn through a painful process of dying and rising, dying to the false infinites in our life, to rise to worship the true infinite, what we learn is how to take our cry for the infinite to the infinite one and his plan for our fulfillment. What we start out as is taking our cry for the infinite to the finite things, hoping they'll satisfy. So if two hours of blue blood marathon sounds good, six hours of blue bloods is great. If one bear helps, a whole keg will be great. If watching one cat video on YouTube is fun, six hours of YouTube will be great. The definition of addiction is to try to suck infinity out of finite things. Rather than letting finite things awaken and lead us to the infinite one who's speaking through them. And this is how kind God is, right? Because the infinite one is the one who forgives us in confession. He recalibrates to say, I know what you were looking for. Let me dust you off and say, I didn't give up on you. Don't give up on me. I really will fulfill you. Let's check in uh, at a small group. So we're going to do five minutes here. Just answer the first question, which is, what is something new that you didn't know or hadn't thought of in this way? Share your small groups. Just check in with each other. What is something new you've heard that you didn't know of or you just didn't think about it in this way. Just you can hear what's going on in each other's hearts. Don't talk for 10 minutes. Everyone has to talk at the table. So just share a little bit. Ready, go. Alrighty, I know. I know we would love to talk more. I would love to give you that time. I would love to give you more time. But the truth is, I plan too much. I have too much content, and I apologize. But uh, since I spent hours doing it, I want to give you a few more things, okay? We're going to do a few more, and then we'll take a break. So you'll get a little time to walk around. And if you're burning to share, if you're an extrovert, you can share during that time. So the heart has been missing in our approach in the church. That's my claim. So who am I? I'm a guy from Cleveland. You could ignore it. I won't. I get it. But our heart speaks through desires. And our desires are awakened a lot through what is beautiful and good. But also our hearts kind of speak to us when we experience pain. And it's always suggesting to us, our hearts are always speaking to us of this kind of life that we're looking for. This is what I mean by we have to learn our hearts. We have to relearn how they're speaking to us. Because they're speaking a language we don't always get. 
it's closer to like poetry and symbolism. St. Paul's letter to Ephesians, it says, you are God's poem. Okay, so there's a sense of the poetic that, that happens in our hearts. It speaks through symbols and signs. Before I go to the next quote, I just want to tell a quick story. I was at um, the, the place where all of you meet when you're not meeting at church, Starbucks. And uh, I haven't been to Starbucks in three years. It's a long story. But long story short, I was there about six years ago. The woman who wanted to speak with me, and she said, I have a newborn kid, and I'm thinking about leaving my husband. I said, all right, tell me about it. She was sharing how she wants to leave, and I said, so you want to take your kid? And she started crying. She was, I want to leave them both. And I said, how long after you left them would you start feeling like the world's worst woman? She was, not even a day probably. I said, okay, so you know then you're not looking for that, actually. But you are looking for something. What does the idea of leaving mean to you? And she said, peace and freedom. I said, I got really good news for you. Jesus said, I want to give you peace. And St. Paul said, for freedom's sake, we were set free. So maybe what you need is a reality that can break into your life and give your heart what you need. And we begin that discussion from there. But see, she couldn't understand her heart. She was in pain and looking for it. She hadn't learned what she was seeking yet. Pope Francis, now let me just say, uh, there's a lot of views on Pope Francis either way. All right, so I just put him up there and part of your heart was like, okay, okay, I get it. If you were like, that's my guy. To be honest, Either way, he's the Pope. So here we go. And I'm going to quote him. So there you go. Don't want to dismiss you. Just want to say, I see you. And we're still going to go with the quote. All right, great. He's quoting Pascal. And he says, what is it then that this longing and this feeling of helplessness cry out to us? If not that man once enjoyed a true happiness of which there now remains but an empty trace that he tries to in vain to fill. Why do we seek therapy? After all, everyone is lacking the fullness of life. Every one of us doesn't feel whole, certainly not consistently. So why do we seek it? If no one has it, why would we even think that it could be found? If on some level, some part of us doesn't think it must be possible to be whole, It must be possible to be fully alive. We must on some place deep within us, it's called a a mystical memory, if you will, a remembering of a time where to be human meant to be full or whole, grounded, consistent, full of integrity and intimacy. If we didn't have it at one point, how would we know to seek these things? Where does this come from? That's what Pope Francis is using Blaise Pascal to get us in touch with. This longing. He'll use the word, Pope Francis, nostalgia a lot. And nostalgia is a remembering a home. A place where we could totally be ourselves. Home is where you put the sweatpants on and put your feet up where you can relax and be yourself, and it's safe and it's good. Why does that resonate? Why do we seek that so much? I'll submit to you that 
It's because God first made us for the Garden of Eden. And that still echoes in our hearts. Pope St. John Paul II in Theology Body says that there is echoes of original man in the human heart. Original man, we could say here is man and woman in the Garden of Eden. That the original plan for flourishing, there'd be no need for doctors or lawyers or police. Why? Because everything was good and beautiful. Everything spoke to us of the mystery and the infinite one, and our hearts were constantly offering praise and receiving. It was beautiful. And even though the world is broken and we have fallen, Christ has entered this world and raised it back up, filling it with his love and grace. And there's still echoes in your heart and in everybody's heart of that original time. Does that mean we have to relearn how our hearts are speaking? There's these little echoes. My friend got dumped, right? And she's like, no, it made sense. This wasn't a good relation. But in her heart, it hurt. I felt so much pain because I was rejected. What's her heart telling her? I must have been made in such a way that I'm not meant to be rejected, passed over, or abandoned. I'm looking to be seen and delighted in and chosen. That's not wishful thinking. That's how we were structured and created by God. See, our hearts echo to us. So this is uh, Monsignor Albacete again. Using John Paul II's Theology of the Body, he was the first teacher of it in the United States, by the way. And this is him using a quote of it and unpacking it. It is because evil is so alien to how we were made that suffering and death are so repulsive. We cannot imagine history without the struggle that brings about suffering. But deep within our hearts we hear a distant echo of what could have been of how human life was really meant to be. As I told you, I'm half Jewish, and there's a petition in our opening prayer about welcoming or honoring the Jewish people and things like this, which I appreciate it. My brother has never seen me give a talk before because he's Jewish, so he doesn't care what I have to say. But uh, he may come down this afternoon, so he may get to, I've never been able to embarrass him my whole life. I hope he shows up. But like, why do things like Hamas and Israel bother us? Russia and Ukraine. I don't know if you know this. There's never been a time where there's been world peace, as much as Miss America wants it. Now, whether or not the news will cover the unrest in certain parts of the world is another question, but there's never been a time. There's been a 60-year civil war in Burma. Never been covered in the news. 60 years they've been fighting, never been covered, because it doesn't affect our government, our news channels. But why does it bother us? And why do we feel so naive, or at least I should speak to myself, why do I feel so naive when part of me wants to be like, can't we just get along? It sounds so stupid and childish, but it's like, it's because deep inside, the gut-wrenching pain of division, conflict, war, Why do we still claim that's bad when it always has been and consistently happens? We all respond to it like this has never happened before. What Why does that happen? Because on some level, we know how it was meant to be. We don't have the words. Remember, it's a known unknown. But there's something in us. As I said, my parents are divorced and quite a few people who are and things like this. And it's like, 
Why does the lifelong difficulty around holidays bother us so much? My parents got divorced when I was 18. I'm 40. So they've been divorced longer in my life than they were married. And I still hate Thanksgiving and Christmas. Not hate is a strong word, but it's still tough. Why doesn't my heart just get used to it? Because I'm not meant to get used to things that go against God's plan. You're not meant to love things you weren't created for. A homeless person should not like a disease-infected, half-eaten sandwich out of the dumpster. He shouldn't like it. I promised Mario I'd make him nervous. Father Mario nervous a few times. This will be one of them. Buckle up, Father Mario. I'd like to talk about COVID for a second. Bring, you know, just bring everyone together. <laughs> I hope you never got used to masks. Not whether or not they were needed, not the medical judgment on them or some political pundit trying to make a stand for them, him or herself, to get elected for something. Just the human experience of a face veiled. That I don't know what you're experiencing. As a speaker, really hard. Because <laughs> I can see several times, say, you go, and like, oh, they're connecting. Or people go, and I go, oh, that person in the back really likes me. I now like them a lot, too. But when that was taken away, there was no communion. We were not meant for that. That was supposed to be deflating and frustrating and sad. Why? Not just because, well, it's what we're used to. See, that's how the enemy wants us to, wants to help us to interpret our humanity. When you have Jesus and the scriptures and the saints, the church was, I don't like that because I was meant to see a human person's face. In the Garden of Eden, it was not good that we were alone. They found fulfillment when they saw another human face that was loving and being loved. It echoes deep. And Jesus, the catechism says, came to redeem creation to the purity of its origins. Meaning, the grace of Jesus in you is trying to awaken in you this original plan, and then to give you the love and power to live accordingly. So that in people seeing the way we live, they would say, that's beautiful. That's why so many atheists even say, well, I'm no Mother Teresa. Her life was captivating to people, no matter what you believed. In our hearts, a lot's still going on. So this is what I'd like to do. I'd like just to take a 10-minute break. Right, we take a little bit, move around. To, and if you want to talk about something, you're like, hey, I saw this person. I feel like I should say something to them. You know, instead of talking about the weather, uh, you can ask them, hey, what's something you love that has nothing to do with church? So we can hear what each other loves. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.